faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is why the elders of Cambridge would report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. For without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and being heir of the righteousness which is by faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, and I pray that our hearts would be open to receiving its truths. I pray that your spirit would work within us unfettered. Lord, that he would freely move within us, opening up our eyes to your truths, opening up our ears that we might understand. We thank you once again for this time and we pray for your blessing upon us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, if you do a bit of a study of the Old Testament characters going all the way back, many of them, or most of them, had names which epitomized their character. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of them had names and the Jews had this, seems as if they, they had this particular type of, uh, of custom that you'd name a child something that had some sort of a meaning. And I suppose we do that today as well. But what about a church? What about a church's name? I mean, we are called Faith Baptist Church, right? I wonder if, I wonder if um, our faith follows what we call ourselves as a church. Is, is our church name the epitome or is it indicative of what makes us different to other churches? Are we strong in faith? And I hope we are. And these, uh, these few sermons will be focused on that particular topic. And my prayer is that we live up to the name that we call ourselves as a church. And this particular passage which speaks about faith is such a beautiful passage. It provides not only a brilliant definition about what faith is, but also tells us where faith will lead you, the types of choices you will make if you have strong faith. And what I'd like to do is examine faith through the lives of two very important individuals that take up a fair bit of space in Genesis. And those two individuals are Abraham and Lot. Now, oftentimes in the Bible, God puts two characters side by side in a story, right? in the events of their lives and he lines them up and what he does he shows us the contrast of those two people 
and in, in their lives and the way they dealt with God and the way they responded to him and the way they conducted themselves, you see this really big contrast and you look at that and you look at, uh, at people like Cain and Abel and you see one being a particular way, the other one being almost the exact opposite, which shows you the right way to go and the wrong way to go. Okay? What about Jacob and Esau? David and Saul? And the list goes on. See, often you find the Bible, God puts two characters together or the story's told of a contrast, which means they're very different. But in some cases, the Lord provides two individuals side by side who aren't that different, who generally are the same, but with the exception of maybe one or two things that then show up throughout their lives that ends up leading them on very different courses and this is what we find with Abraham and Lot. They had very similar starts. They both belong to the same family, which means they generally lived together. Okay? They had the same upbringing, lived in the same city for most of their lives, shared the same culture and family. They ended up both believing in the same God. They both left home to go to a promised land that God had promised, they were both declared in the Bible just and righteous men. But Abraham's and Lot's lives took very, very different turns. And they, and they show up in very, very different ways. And they ended up in completely different places by the end of their lives. And so these next few sermons are going to examine their two lives and why they ended up where they did. And I, I, my prayer is that through their lives, we're going to find out why. The one main difference we're going to find, and I'll tell you this from the, the beginning, is faith. One had a very strong faith. The other didn't. And it is faith, or the lack of it, which will determine what choices they make and which will also determine what choices that you and I make. Your level of faith, whether it's strong or whether it's weak, will determine what choices you make in your life. And I'm not talking about, you know, whether I have wheat bix in the morning or whether I have cornflakes, okay? Not those sort of choices. When it comes to moral choices that we make, when we hit a, you know, that, uh, that proverbial fork in the road, and we go and we have to make a decision whether we go left or right and that decision is going to change the course of our lives faith or lack of it will often be involved of whether you make that left or right hand turn which will then change the course of your life the choices we make are often based on our faith and will lead us to new circumstances and new consequences and that then will lead you to another set of circumstances. Does that make sense? And so what may be a slight difference at one particular point may, after a number of years, show itself up to be a very, very big difference. And this is what we find with Abraham and Lot. Abraham's faith led him to make certain choices that led to certain consequences, while Lot made his own choices at the same junctures of life 
and had a very, very different outcome. And it is the same for us. The choices we make will reflect what type of faith we have. Neither Abraham nor Lot were perfect. We're going to discover that both of them made mistakes. Both of them messed up. Both of them sinned. But time and time again, we're going to also discover that Abraham's faith shines through when it came to decision time. We don't see the same thing for Lot. Not only did their lives end up in very, very different places, but, and this is true for us as well, the legacy of their life, the people that they affected along the way, and also the fruits of their life after they had even passed away, ended up being very, very different. You see, we often underestimate the choices we make in life and who else it is affecting. But we are here, and think about this for a moment, the Bible epitomizes Abraham's faith. It actually, it, it celebrates it, doesn't it? And we are called the children of Abraham in the Bible by faith, according to faith. It doesn't say we are the children of Lot by faith. If you look at the descendants of Lot and what happened with that, you'll find whatever choices he made led to terrible consequences after he was gone. But Abraham, very, very different again. So in this passage we just read, I want to focus on just a few things before we start to delve into the lives of these two individuals. Hebrews 11.1 1 starts off with this definition now faith is the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen so the second part of that verse is a rewriting of the first part of the verse it's the same sort of it's the same thing it's actually saying so substance of things hoped for is being rewritten for us as evidence of things not seen Okay? So it's a different way of saying a similar type of thing. The faith we have in God, according to this verse, the faith we have, the confidence and trust we have in Him and His promises is foundational to whatever hope you may have. You see, the things you look forward to in life are going to be determined by what you believe. Promises such as, I mean, who's looking forward to heaven? Oh, there's at least five of us. That's pretty good. Okay. The rest of you want to finish paying off your home loans, I suppose, before you want to get there. If you're looking forward to heaven, okay, the reason you've got that hope to look forward to is because you, first of all, believe in heaven. And you believe that God has made a place for you there. That Jesus is actually preparing a home for you. That where he is, we may be also, correct? So what we believe okay, is the foundation for what we hope in or what, we, what hope we've actually got. So if you're looking forward to a new body, okay, and the Bible tells us that at the resurrection and at the, or the rapture, God's, we're going to be transformed. Okay? No more glasses. I won't have to, I won't have to adjust them anymore. I'm getting, less, I'm getting better, aren't I? Yes. The things that are falling apart, see, Don will be able to do as much gardening as he likes. Don's going to get to heaven, there's going to be like orchards and orchards of, uh, of peach trees. Off to work. 
<laughs> the foundation the foundation of our hope rests in or, or upon our faith it's the substance of what we are it's the reality necessarily of what we hope for the foundation of your faith in jesus christ leads you to hope in him okay our hope is in him our hope is that we're going to see him face to face one day our hope is that all the promises that he made to us that we're going to get to see them one day because we don't see them now do we i mean i don't we can't see them and that's why they're the, the evidence of things that are not seen we can't see them yet but we hope for them which means we are we have this expectation of what's coming and that expectation is based upon our faith you see if you're not hoping for those things if you're not looking forward to with excitement to jesus returning and taking you home to be with him if heaven's not an exciting prospect for you then it may be indi indicative of a weaker faith okay the evidence of all of these things is found in our faith how because God has revealed and told us about them in his word and we believed his word and because we believed his word we now have hope so faith is the foundation of your hope and if your faith is strong your hope will also be strong and you will be less likely to be discouraged in this life you know if you have a whole lot to look forward to doesn't matter what you go through now, for those of you who are students going through high school and VCE or uni and stuff like that, and you might get discouraged along the way, you've got something to hope for. You know what I mean? Because at the end of it, you're going to receive something. You're going to achieve something. And so you, you, you work your way through it. In anything in life, if you have no hope of what's coming at the end, if there is no hope, I mean, there's a war going on in Ukraine at the moment, and they're fighting with, the, with Russia, right? I mean, they could give up hope very easily couldn't they but there's a hope they've got that they might win and actually be able to get their home back there's a hope without hope if you didn't have hope things just fall apart but hope rests on faith and faith is the evidence of the invisible presence of God in your life your faith which has been stirred up by God is the evidence that he is there and that his promises are true and look at verse 3 it says through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear so what's it saying is is that faith that we have the belief that we have which is based on his word causes us to accept that god made everything that we see in this universe and i love the way that it says the worlds okay because there isn't just one world in this universe there are many worlds in this universe but one that's inhabited but god has made all the worlds and he didn't have to make them from things that were already there you see god didn't take clay and then or something else and then have to use something to make the universe no he made it from nothing he simply spoke it into existence and so it says here by faith we understand that the worlds were created or framed by god simply speaking and he didn't make them from stuff which was already there he didn't need to he made the stuff he made everything from scratch from nothing 
And where do we get this notion that God made everything God made everything from nothing, that he didn't need anything? Well, we get it from Genesis. Because Genesis says, and God said, let there be light. And there was. It didn't have to be light before. God made it from scratch. Then it says, and God said, let the earth bring forth, in verse 24, forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. Everything that God said came to pass. And that's the promise and that's the confidence we have that whatever God has written in his word for us and for this world will come to pass. Because everything he says is always true and there is nothing that can actually dissuade him or stop him from achieving his own purposes. We believe this to be true because we have faith in God and what he told us about his creation. And the word the Bible says that God spoke is actually personified. It's a person, we found out. Because God created the entire universe and everything in it through his son. He is the word of God. And what a blessing that we can have his word in our hands. So Hebrews 11.6 then says though, without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe first of all that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So it's impossible to believe God without having faith in him, without believing in him. And that faith actually is, is an interesting thing because what it's telling us is that faith is forms within it a belief that he exists, that he's real, and that he's, that he's a person and that he, that he can actually speak to us and that he can know us and that he can love us and he has all these attributes that he explains about himself in the word of God. So we have to believe that he is, which is the primary basis of faith, but also that this God that we believe in rewards people, not for works, but by wanting to know him more. When you say to God, I want to know you more. I want you. You know what he does? He gives it to you. And that is the greatest response to a prayer that you will ever have in your life. If that's your heart's desire, then God will give you your heart's desire. Now we pray for a lot of things in life. And we pray for people who are sick to get well and all that sort of stuff. And God is so gracious. He answers so many of our prayers. But the greatest prayer of our hearts should be, I want to know you. I want more of you. Because if we want more of all this other stuff, and we don't want more of him, then we've missed the point here. That God rewards those who diligently seek, not for fame or glory or money or healing or anything else really for him because if you have him you have everything and that's the promise we have in Christ so believe that he is and believe that he will reward you with himself 
if you seek him diligently with your heart. But once he is found, and for many of us, I know that we found him, or more, in, more actually precisely, he found us. And we responded. And now we have him in our lives, but that should be now not the end of our journey, but the beginning of our journey. For that's the first time that we reached out and we said, please save me and come into my heart. And he did. And from that point, we should want more and more and more of him. And he will give more and more and more of himself for you because he's given you already something which you and I didn't deserve, and that is himself. And that himself was on a cross. He gave us himself fully. We have been saved by grace, remember, through faith. But once saved, God wants you to exercise more faith. Now, I look at little babies, okay, and everyone gets, you know, joyous and, you know, and wrapped when they see a little baby born, huh? Now, how much muscle does that little baby have? How strong is that baby? Not very. It needs support. It needs to be looked after. But as you grow, you, earn, you get more muscles. You grow stronger. You're able to do more things yourself. They're able to crawl and then to walk and then to run. That's what God wants for us. You see, we are born again when we first put our trust in him. Our faith, though, is like a baby's muscles. Not much of them. But God wants you then to exercise that faith. And in exercising, you become stronger and stronger and God pushes us ever ever been coached by someone yeah and do they push you hard yeah they do they're not they're not encouraging you to relax on a sofa okay they're pushing you harder why do they push you harder and Paul probably is the the hardest coach that I know they push you hard because without resistance you don't improve and that's what God wants from us that's why the Bible says he allows us to go through trials and tribulations and all that sort of stuff. God has to protect us from all those things because it's in those things, in the crucible of fire sometimes, that the gold actually comes out. It's in the persecution. It's in the trials. It's in the, the temptations even that those things are tested. And God is continually testing our faith. Not for the purpose of, you know, telling us off when we fail. No, for the purpose of increasing our faith. So remember, if you're born again today, you're born a babe. But God doesn't want you to stay a baby. He wants you to become an adult. He wants you to mature and become stronger. And that only happens when you exercise your faith. And your faith has to be exercised against a resistance. And that's why we, why we are still in this world. Because if you're looking for resistance, there's plenty of resistance here. The question is whether we're just going to take it easy and go with the flow whichever way it's going or we're going to stand and hold our ground and move in the opposite direction when he calls us to and this is the pattern that we see with abraham and lot go to hebrews 11 8 to 10 this is the pattern right hebrews 11 8 to 10 says by faith abraham when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, 
having all the details and every T crossed and every I dotted. No. He didn't know where he was going. <laughs> it says that he obeyed and he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith then, when he got there, he sojourned, which means he didn't actually settle down completely. He was still like travelling around. He sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, that's tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. He never had a house. When he, when he left his home in, uh, in Ur, he never had a house. He got to the place where God wanted him to get to, but lived in tents for the rest of his life with his children and grandchildren. But it says, For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, because he realized it was something a lot deeper than just the land that he was standing on. Abraham's faith in God was evidence of the existence of God, of something which was much deeper that God had promised him. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't have all the details, but you know what? When you trust someone, you don't have to have all the details. If someone says to you, come with me, and you know them, and you know their heart and their character, and you trust that person, you'll go with them. But if someone says to you, hey, buddy, uh, and you see them around the shop somewhere, come behind the building over here. I've got $100,000 I want to give you. Hands up who'd go behind the building for that $100,000. We have at least one in the fan house. Because the odds are you're not going to be getting $100,000. Why wouldn't you go? Because if you don't know that person, you don't know their heart, and the promise is too good to be true. But when someone that you know and trust makes you a promise, you're likely to believe it. And Abraham believed God. He believed and trusted God. That's why God said, I want you to go. Go to this place. Abraham hadn't been there before, didn't know anything about it, didn't know what he was going to get when he got there. But still, he went because he trusted God. And he ended up living the rest of his life like a stranger in a foreign country. Why did he do that? Because he was looking for something much deeper. Compare this faith to the type of faith you would have if a stranger came to you and made you a promise. Think about that for a moment. You'll understand the difference between trusting in God and not trusting in someone that you can't trust or that you're not sure about. And this is a picture of us. How is our faith compared to Abraham's? Now, when God tells us to go in a particular direction, do we need all the information before we start the journey? No, we don't need it. Or if you do need it, it may be indicative that you don't have a strong faith. What are we looking forward to? Abraham was looking forward to a city which had its foundations, whose builder and maker was God. What are we looking forward to? How was your confidence in his promises this morning? We may be living in, a, in this world, but is your confidence in this world or is it in a place where, that he's preparing for us? Abraham didn't fit in. It says he was a sojourner. Well, guess what you and I are? We are strangers in this world. The Bible says we don't belong to this world. 
The Bible says that when we were born again, God made us ambassadors of heaven. We belong to heaven. We have now, God has made us citizens of his kingdom. And his kingdom is not welcome in this world. That's the bottom line. So the question is, we are, the, the thing we need to understand is that we are in hostile territory. Ambassadors for a, a, a kingdom that hasn't been received by this world. That doesn't recognize that kingdom even. That doesn't recognize the king. And here we are. We're saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're citizens of this place. Be prepared to be resisted. And your faith will determine what you do with your ambassadorship. We may be living in this world, but there is a city we have to look forward to whose builder and maker is God. You'll notice in this passage in Hebrews that Abraham is mentioned in this whole passage from verses 1 to 10 and even beyond. You'll notice that um, Abraham's mentioned, Isaac's mentioned, Jacob's mentioned, Sarah's mentioned, and other people are mentioned. Was Lot mentioned? No. Lot didn't make it into the, the chapter on faith. Why? Because Lot struggled with his faith. While Abraham lived in tents as a stranger, waiting for the Lord's promises, Lot eventually went to live in Sodom and became a very active citizen within it. Despite the wickedness that he saw around him, and it says that it, it, he's even said the evil that he saw around him vexed him. He hated it, right? Yet he ended up heading towards a city while Abraham lived in the plain. And he did that, and Lot did that with devastating consequences. So let's have a bit, look at a bit of a background to these two lives before. This is only going to be an introduction, this, uh, this sermon, on these two men. Turn with me to Genesis 11.31. Genesis 11.31. We're going to look at a, the background of these two, these two men. So the end of Genesis tells us something interesting. Genesis 11, 31 to 32 says, And Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran, and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, what's going on? First of all, notice that it says that Terah took Abram, his son, or as the Jews pronounce it. Who knows how the Jews pronounce it? Avram. No B. Okay? It's Avr. They roll their R's like, a, like Italians do. Avram. So, Abram, before he became Abraham, because God changed his name later, was a son of Terah, and he was a descendant of Shem, and he was born and raised in the city of Ur of the Chaldees. And that today is in modern-day Iraq, near Nasiriyah, in the southeast of the actual country. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and Lot was 
Haran's son and Haran had died before they ended up leaving for Canaan. So right from the beginning, we see that Abram was not the only one to leave his city. He actually had other people leaving to uproot his life, to travel to a foreign country to where God had called. No, in fact, his dad, Terah, and Lot, his nephew, and their families, okay, all made the move as well, all uprooted themselves. But it looks like Terah didn't make it to Canaan because it says they reached Haran, and then at that particular point, Canaan, uh, Terah dies, and he died in Haran. We don't know how long they were in Haran, but we do know that Terah died when he was 205 years old. That's a decent age, right? 205 years old when he died there. And it was probably due to his ill health that he actually died there. They had to stop traveling, and he ended up dying where they ended up stopping. And then it was only after he died did Abraham then continue his journey to Canaan. And Paul describes the sequence in the, book, in the book of Acts. Go to Acts. Just hold your place there, but go to Acts chapter 7, verse 4. So what we know is that Abram stayed with his father in Haran until his father passed away. Then they would have buried him, mourned him, and then he continued his journey off to Canaan. And it says in Acts 7, 4, Then came he out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Sharan, which is Haran. Okay, it's just pronounced, it's spelled differently. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land, which means he removed himself into this land, which Paul was talking about. He was in Israel. And he was speaking to the Jews, he says, wherein ye now dwell. So God, had God called all of them to leave Ur? No. Actually, God had only called one person. Did he call Terah to leave Ur? No. Did he call Lot to leave Ur? No. Look at verse 2 and 3 of that same passage, Acts 7, verse 2. And he said, men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharan, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. So God had appeared to Abraham in Ur, while he was living there with his family, before he arrived in Haran, before they all set out together. Who did God speak to? Who, who did he reveal himself to? To Abraham. This made, passage makes clear that the Lord had specifically called Abraham. There's no mention that he spoke or, or revealed himself to Lot or Terah. God called Abraham again after his father died. So go back to Genesis chapter 12 now. So they had they had left. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 5. So they had left Ur of the Chaldees, and I'll explain what Chaldees is in a moment. They, they left Ur, and then they traveled to Haran. Terah dies there at 205 years of age. And then it says that in Haran, Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. 
and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot, Lot went with him. No mention of terror. Why? And Abraham was 70 and 5 years old when he departed out of Haran. Now it was only Abram and Lot that were left. And it says in verse 5, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. So it looks as if they stayed in Haran long enough to actually accumulate more goods, to build up more flocks. Okay, so it looks as if it wasn't just like the they, they stopped there overnight and then he passed away and then they then they went moved on. It looks like they were there for a little while and God calls him out of that place and he leaves then Haran according to that calling. But it's a few points that I'd like you to notice here, and that's one terror is not with them anymore. They were departing out of Haran, and Abraham was now seventy five years old as he's leaving Haran. Terah died when he was 205 years old. It seems as if, according to scriptures, when I was doing my research, that Abraham was not the firstborn of Terah. I thought that he was originally, but it doesn't look as if he was, because it says that he left Haran when he was 75. Terah died when he was 205 years old, and it says that in, in if you go back to Genesis 11:26. It says, and Terah lived 70 years. And then it says that he begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So, but it doesn't tell us what was the spread here. It doesn't say, it looks as if Haran was older than Abram. In fact, it looks as if there was a difference of about 60 years between Abraham and his eldest brother. <coughs> because Terah was only 70 years old when he had his first child. We just don't know which one that was. But then by the time Abraham leaves uh, Haran, Terah is 205 years old. That's a long time between, you know, between one and the other. So it looks as if that Terah had Abraham when he was about 130 years old and the likelihood is that Haran was probably the oldest because he would, had died while he was still in, in Mesopotamia, before they even left Ur. If you think about why Lot was with Abraham, whose son was Lot? He was Haran, and he had died. So it looks as if that Abraham may have been the second oldest because it looks as if he then bore the responsibility of looking after Lot. So Lot probably looked up to Abraham as almost like a second father. And it's obvious that Abraham and Lot were intimately connected. They were connected together in a very strong way. And why did, you might ask, why did Terah leave with them as well? Well, you know, when your son, after 
hundred and how many, how many years, says, you know, Dad, I've seen a vision. And uh, God's calling me to go to a place. Where are you going, son? Uh, I don't know. Uh, what are you going to do when you get there, son? I don't know that either. Um, but are you sure you want to go? Are you sure you have to do this? Yes, Dad, I'm sure I have to do this. Well, son, you know what? I better come with you. So I suspect that Terah probably thought my son's going to find himself in trouble if I don't go with him and felt probably obliged to go. But then it says, if you look at Genesis eleven twenty eight, and Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. Well, you know what the Chaldees are? The Chaldees are the Chaldeans. Okay, and you've probably read that name a number of times in the Old Testament. The, Chalde, the Chaldeans, the Chaldean people, which are often mentioned in the Bible, are most often associated and lived in Iraq, that area of Iraq, or that country of Iraq, for most of the time in the southern uh, areas of Iraq um, or south of Babylon, the city, were associated often with Babylon. Okay, And, the, and you'll notice if you read the accounts in Daniel of of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, he had people who were advising him, and he had astrologers and and uh, magicians, and he also had Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were obviously ranked pretty high in that uh, in that particular time. And Chaldeans, do we have any Chaldeans here? Sounds funny, but there's plenty of Chaldeans around here, where we are. There are Chaldeans, funnily enough, there's probably more Chaldeans in Australia than there are in most of the country because many of them migrated and they still exist. They still have their own language, okay, which, they, which they've been speaking for thousands of years. But many of them during the Iraq war were being persecuted and actually ended up coming to Australia. And most of them settled in Melbourne. And most of them are only up the road in Craigieburn, and around here. So there's something interesting for you. Okay, There's actually a church. They've got their churches up, up the road in Craigieburn because the Chaldeans converted to Christianity. But surrounding them were all Muslims. And so they've been persecuted for a very long time as a minority. So when things started to heat up in Iraq, most of them decided to leave. And where do you go? Melbourne's a great place to come and live, isn't it? They came here. So, Lot um, had lost his father in Haran. He probably came under the leadership of Abraham and Terah during his life. And so he was connected with these two for a long, long time. But what is interesting is that whatever happened to Abraham, that vision that he had of God, where God revealed himself to Abraham, affected his whole family. Affected all of them. And that vision that he had, or that or that calling that he had from God, didn't just stay with him. It actually ended up rope, roping in the other ones as well, including his dad and Lot. Now we know that God was already being worshipped by Abram, Nahor, Haran and Terah before they left Ur, 
because we're told go back to Genesis or go to Genesis 31 53 with me Genesis 51 sorry 31 53 now the three brothers were Abraham Nahor and Haran Haran had died and much later on Jacob meets Laban And it says in, in Genesis 31, 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, who is terror, judge betwixt between us. And Jacob swear by the fear of his father Isaac. Who is he talking to here? He's talking to Laban. Who's Laban? Laban is the son of Nahor. So they were related. The point here that I'm trying to make, though, is that before Abraham left to go to Canaan, his whole family got saved. His whole family got converted. And you might say, oh, Pastor Frank, maybe they were always believing because, I mean, if he's a descendant of Shem, maybe he was already believing. The answer is no. In fact, he was responsible. And, and actually, um, Joshua answers this question. Did they believe? No, they didn't. Go to Joshua chapter 24. They were non-believers. They were unbelievers. They actually worshipped idols. Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. And so here we have Joshua. Many generations after, after they had entered into the promised land there, and Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time. The other side of the flood is the, 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 um, the Euphrates River. Okay, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nacor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. The God's testifying about what he did in Abraham's life. The flood here is a Euphrates river that separates Israel from Mesopotamia and God says I took them and they were all idol worshippers they were non-believers they worshipped and served other gods and it's probably most likely that they worshipped the moon god but whatever way you look at it Abraham was the first to believe and brought his whole family to salvation brought his whole family to believe in God. Because I think I've shared with you Acts 7.2, where the Apostle Paul says, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Sharan. And we know that the, the main religion of the time in Ur 
because in Ur there was this big ziggurat. Ziggurat is like a like a pyramid almost, but it's like a, like a spiral. So think of the Tower of Babel, hmm? and we we know even who was who built it. His, na- his name was Ur Namu, around twenty one hundred BC, and that ziggurat, which was the center of that city, was dedicated to Nana, the moon god. And the moon god for them was the most, the greatest god out of all the pantheon of Mesopotamian gods. And they believed that the moon gave them fertility, gave them crops, gave them herds and looked after their families. And so they were probably believing in this particular, worshipping this moon god. But God showed himself to Abraham. Abraham's life was changed. And he ended up leading, leaving the, leading the rest of his family to God as well. His brothers, his nephew, and his father. And just like Jesus revealed himself to the apostle Paul in that, in, that, in that blinding light, and Paul got saved while he was busy on the road trying to destroy the church, and his life was completely changed after that, he became a huge man of faith and became an apostle for the Lord, God did the same with Abraham. He revealed himself to Abraham in a vision. And Abraham's faith from that particular point must have been so strong and persuasive that he managed to convert his entire family to not only believe in God, that this was the only and one true God, but to come with him to a place he didn't know anything about. So his faith affected their lives. Just a couple of points to close. It's obvious here, and it should be obvious to all of us, that Abraham was not just a man of strong faith, but he was a man who wasn't afraid to share his faith. And the first place he shared his faith, and they saw his faith, was in his own family. And his faith must have been so strong, and his and his excitement and his zeal for God must have been so convincing that his whole family got saved. Genuine faith reveals itself. It will reveal itself in the way we behave, in the choices we make, and it's inevitable that if we have strong faith, other people are going to see it. And if we have strong faith, we shouldn't be afraid to share it. But if you have strong faith, people are going to see it before you even start speaking about it. And that should be our goal. That our lives, even before we utter a word, should be so strong in the faith that people will naturally say, what's wrong with this person? Why are they different? Why are they living their lives like this or that? And so I want to encourage all of you to live your faith. To allow your your faith to guide your speech your decisions, your choices in life and let it shine because the Bible says that we are not called to put our light under a bushel or to have it hidden. Our faith is meant to be lived in front of other people. Are you going to get persecuted? Yes, expect it and praise God if you do because you're counted worthy to be persecuted for the one who suffered all that for you. Live your life 
in a way that other people see your faith. You know, there's a particular passage in, in 1 Corinthians 7, 16, that, that passage of chapter 7, where Paul's talking about, all right, do you stay with an unbelieving husband? So if you're married to someone and your husband is an unbeliever, and the, do you stay with that person? Or if you're, a, if you're a husband and your wife is a non-believer, do you stay with that person? And Paul gives guidance along that sort of, in, the, in that passage about what you should do and what the obligations are. But he says, one particular verse, which I think is wonderful, he says, For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how, or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? In other words, stay with them. If you're going to be a light to them and they're happy for you to stay and there's not going to be you know, fights and whatever... If they're happy for you to stay, how do you know whether you're going to, whether or not you're going to convert your, your spouse? Convert. If we've been granted eternal life, our light should shine in this world, especially beginning in our own homes. We've been called to give glory to God in every possible way. Even if people disagree with our faith and, and disagree with our testimony, Abraham influenced his whole family. Choose to be like Abraham. Among your friends, among your family, choose to have his faith. Lot followed Abraham. But you know what genuine faith does? It leads from the front. It doesn't wait for someone else to go ahead of me before I go and do something. Faith means I will choose to follow even if no one is going in that direction. And that's what Abraham did. And his family followed so choose to be the one who leads. And how are you leading? You can only properly lead when you are following the Saviour. So follow Jesus Christ, have strong faith, and be the leader God has called for you to be. God bless you. Thank you.